Let's pray. God, we come before you because you are great. You are faithful. You are mighty king. You are Lord of lords. You are before time began. And Lord, we give all glory and honor and praise to you this morning. It is our joy to come this morning and lift our hearts in praise to you. And we are so thankful because of who you are and what you've done. Lord, we ask today that you would prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts for what your word has to say. Prepare our hearts for how you want to speak through your word that is living and active. Lord, you know where each of us have come from this morning as we walked in or as we've come online. We bring many burdens. We lift up many requests. We come at many stages. Some of us know you intimately. Some of us just have begun to know you and some of us are still seeking. May your word today provide clarity and understanding of who you are and what you've done. Lord, would you speak through your message today and through your word as we understand you as king and what is your kingdom. Lord, may we leave here with a deeper understanding of your love, your grace, and your peace. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Please remain uh, standing for the reading of God's word. We are beginning in Matthew chapter 1, and if you have your Matthew journals, it's great. You can turn to page 10. The reading is going to be right there for you. And we just want to honor God's word as we read it this morning. So Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amon. 
Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of, of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiad, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azar, Azar, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, brother. All right, good morning, familia. For those of you that um, are about to have kids or are planning to have more kids in the future, if you don't know what names to use, you got a list of a bunch of weird names there that you could pick from. <laughs> you know, I'm reading through that list and I'm thinking, there is no way an immigrant should be reading that passage. <laughs> so thank you, Brent. You did an okay job. <laughs> My name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. If this is your home church, we are glad that you're here. If you're worshiping with us online, we are glad that you're worshiping with us. And if you're visiting for the first time, I just want to let you know that we're here to love you and serve you in any way we can. So if there's anything we can do for you, please let us know. I have the privilege of starting this series based on the Gospel of Matthew, which basically has one intent, one purpose, one reason. We want to get to know Jesus more. We want to be shaped by Jesus more. We want to grow in our understanding of who he is more, what he came to do more, what, who we are in him more. And what better way to do that than to go through one of his biographies. As you have heard so far, the title of this series is The King and His Kingdom. And part of the reason why we chose that title for this series is because the Gospel of Matthew, the primary way the Gospel of Matthew describes Jesus or talks about Jesus is as a king, as a king that came to establish his kingdom and to save people for his kingdom. So if you are here and you want to get to know Jesus, if you are here and, we, and, and you want to see what Jesus says about himself, if you have questions about Jesus and you're seeking for answers, if you are exploring Jesus and you want to know if Jesus is the real thing, if you're not even sure if Jesus is the real thing, I want to invite you to join us and walk with us as we walk for 70 weeks, more or less, through the Gospel of Matthew. That's how long it's going to take us to go from chapter 108 to chapter 28. Um, and part of the reason why I'm so excited here and starting with this chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, is because I believe that this text, the genealogy of Jesus, dictates not just the tone of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, but it dictates the tone of the rest of the New Testament. See, what we have here in the genealogy of Jesus is kind of a resume. 
In a resume, you get an introduction to a person. You get a general understanding of who the person is, the background, and based on that information, you decide if you want to get to know that person more or if you want to interview that person later on. This is part of the reason why, in modern day, resumes are kind of important. People are making judgments about you based on what they see in that resume. People are making decisions about you based on what they see in that resume. And this is also part of the reason why many of us lie in our resumes. <laughs> because we know that whatever is there is the first impression. That whatever is there is going to help the person reading it make a decision about you. This is part of the reason why we don't put everything in a resume. This is all part of the reason why we sometimes we modify our resumes. We make sure that the things we put there are appealing enough for you to get a second call. Isn't it true? My first year in college, right after high school, one of my first jobs uh, is a, uh, was given by a friend. A friend of mine uh, found it for me. And my job, the title of that job was to be a truck washer. You know, really fancy title for my title. And, you know, the skills were, you know, the only skills that that required was that I knew how to handle water and, water and soap, you know. But, but I knew that if I wanted to get a... If I wanted to get a better job, I had to have a job first, number one. And two, I knew that if I wanted to have a better job, I was going to have to change the title of my job because that wouldn't be appealing, right? So this is before Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so I changed the title from truck washer to truck detail operator. Sounded much better, right? The problem, though, is that when I went in for the interview, the person asked me, what does that mean? What do you do? And I'm like, I just wash trucks. <laughs> That's it. So the title didn't do anything. But what I find amazing about this resume, though, is that Jesus doesn't do any of that. He unapologetically tells you who he is, does not leave anything out, and does not leave anyone out. There's no modification in Jesus' resume, in this genealogy. So with Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we're going to see an intro to who Jesus is by looking into five different things. Jesus is the king of the new beginnings. Jesus is the king of the good news. Jesus is the king of faithfulness. Jesus is the king who is not ashamed, and Jesus is the king of peace. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say to that person, you need this. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> and then you respond, no, 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 you need this. <laughs> All right, let's bring it in. Point number one, the king of new beginnings. Let me start with this. There is a gap of 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the New, Test New Book of the New Testament, or the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. The last book of the, uh, of the, old, the, last book of the old Testament is the, the book of Malachi, which was written 400 years prior to Jesus' arrival. So for 400 years, God's people have not heard anything from Jesus. 
The interesting thing, though, is that one of the last things the prophet said before God went silent is that he told them that one day there will be a judgment day. And it is the prophet calling his people, God's people, to come back to God and to obey his commandments. That's the last thing they hear. 400 years pass by and no one has heard anything yet or anything more. So the most logical assumption is to think that all these people that just heard about the judgment of God and they haven't seen or heard anything else, they are assuming that God walked away from them, that God had already given up on them. That is the context of the Gospel of Matthew. 400 years, God is silent. And the first thing, th the first thing they hear is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, look at how this starts. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's a couple of things that I want you to see there. Notice that the first thing the Gospel of Matthew does in verse 1 is that it presents Jesus as one of the sons of David, meaning that it presents Jesus as a king by nature, that he comes from royal blood. Now, why would that be important right at the beginning in the intro of who Jesus is? Because if you really pay attention, does not describe Jesus as your best friend or your buddy or your partner in life or your counselor or your miracle maker. The first intro that we have of Jesus is as king, God king. And if he's king, then he's the ultimate ruler, the ultimate authority. He is supreme. He is worthy of admiration. He is worthy of submission. He is worthy of obedience and respect. He's King Jesus. That is the intro. And the second thing that you can see in verse 1 is that he uses the word genealogy, which is the same word that is used in the original to, to talk about a genesis or a new beginning. And that is significant because he tells you that after 400 years, God in Jesus, God in Jesus' arrival, not only was continuing the story from the Old Testament, the redemption story, but he was doing something new. He was starting something new. Jesus is the genesis of a new era. And in this era, there's only one king, one person at the center, Jesus. It's not an era of multiple gods and multiple people. It's the era of one king right in the center of everything, and his name is Jesus. If that is true, there are a few implications and applications for us here. If this is the first thing the Gospel of Matthew says about Jesus, and this is the first book of the New Testament, then it tells you that the entire New Testament is not about you. It's about Jesus as king. The second implication is that if the entire New Testament is all about Jesus, everything that we're looking for, everything that we long for is not found in the things that Jesus gives you. Is found in who Jesus is. 
If you want your longings to be satisfied, don't just pray for God to give you that. Get Jesus and everything else is added. The entire Bible is about that. And number three, if this is true, and I believe the Bible says it's true, that Jesus is the beginning of a new, uh, of a new era, then if you, have, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, there is a before Jesus and after Jesus. You are not the same person. You really are not the same person. You might struggle with a ton of things. You might still struggle with many sins. But you are not the same person. Your sins do not define you. There is a pre-Jesus and after Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the king of new beginnings. The Gospel of Matthew also tells us that this Jesus is the king of the good news. Did you notice that Jesus right at the beginning... Is called Jesus the Messiah in three different places, actually, in the entire text. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, this is the gene- genealogy, genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. And then he repeats the same thing in verse 16, Jesus who is called the Messiah. And then in verse 17, the last word is that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with those names, let me give you just a summary of it. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ the Messiah, simply means this, that he is the chosen one, the anointed one that the Old Testament people were waiting for, and that he came for one reason and one reason alone, to save people. To save people from the power of sin, to save people from the penalty or consequence of sin, and to send people to save people from the presence of sin eventually when he returns. This is what the rest of the New Testament calls the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Now, for modern people, many times we confuse good news with good advice. Tim Keller makes an argument that modern Christians have a hard time understanding that there's a difference between those two. This is the way he says it, and I quote, Good advice is counsel about about something that you must do. News is a report about something that that has already been done. Good advice urges you to make something happen. Good news urges you to recognize that something has already happened. And you just respond to it. Advice says it is up to you. News says this has already been accomplished. Do you know why that's important? Because the Gospel of Matthew, right from the beginning, it tells you that one of the primary reasons why Jesus came was to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. It tells you that one of the primary reasons why Jesus comes is to earn and purchase your salvation because it's simply impossible for anybody to earn or purchase our salvation. Right from the beginning, the Gospel of Matthew tells you, you needed Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, even if you think that you are a righteous person. No Jesus, no salvation. In 2016, in the Olympics, I believe they were in Mexico, 
there were the story of two brothers that were running a triathlon that made the news. Johnny and Alistair Brownlee. Johnny is the younger brother. Alistair, the older brother. Johnny is a better runner. And Alistair is good, but not as good as the younger brother. Right at the end of the race, uh, when Johnny has run for about an hour and 47 minutes, literally yards away from the finish line, uh, the body hit, um, Johnny's body hit and legs start to give out. And, um, and he starts to fall apart. Like he could see the finish line and his body is falling apart. So and so much that someone from the crowd came in to help him uh, stay standing. His younger brother, that at this moment is in third place, is looking at his brother fall apart, and he runs toward him. He lets the number two guy to go forward, to go become first place, and then he carries his brother all the way to the finish line. The older brother carrying the younger brother all the way to the finish line. Right before they, they cross the finish line, he grabs his brother and dumps him on the other side of the line. So if you follow it, the other guy got the first place, the younger brother got the second place, and only then the other brother crosses the line. See, that's a great illustration of the gospel. The older brother loses so his younger brother could win. How about if I tell you that what Jesus did for us when he earned and purchased our salvation is much better than that? Because he came to carry you. He came to carry me because we couldn't even make it close to the finish line. And he carries your pain. And right when he goes to the cross, he throws you over and he stays behind. The difference is that Jesus didn't lose. He died. He came to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's why Jesus is the king of the good news, not the king of good advice. The Gospel of Matthew also shows us king, uh, king Jesus as the king of faithfulness. Did you guys notice the first name in that list? Abraham. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And then in verse 17 says that it is from Abraham that the rest of the family comes. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the and the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who we call the Messiah. But the question you got to ask is, why is it that the gospel of Matthew starts with Abraham and not with Adam and Eve? That's in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it starts with Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2. Why you start with Abraham? If you know a little bit of your Bible, you might remember that in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that one day he will make of him a great nation. You remember that? And he says that he will bless him so he could be a blessing to the rest of the world. Now listen up. That promise was made to Abraham 1,700 years before Jesus' arrival. 18 centuries before Jesus' arrival. Why does that matter? Well, see, if you know anything about the Old Testament, 
And if you know anything about God's people in the Old Testament, I think that we would all agree that the people in the Old Testament is very similar to us today. People that had some sort of relationship with God. People that wanted to worship God and obey God. But the reality is that sin is so ingrained in our nature that for years and years and years, there's a whole generation of people that have a hard time trusting, believing, and submitting to God. Generation after generation, God's people are struggling trusting God. The sins of the parents being repeated in the sins of their children, generation after generation. Every now and then, there will be a group of people that will be faithful to God. The Bible calls them the remnant, right? But for the most part, everyone is struggling trusting, loving, and obeying their God. For 1,700 years, these people are doing the same thing. God makes a promise, and for 1,700 years, People are doing the same thing. So all the scholars agree in saying that what we have in the genealogy is almost like a summary of the Old Testament. From Abraham to David, from David to Babylon, from Babylon to Jesus. Now this is the crazy thing. That that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. The promise that God made to Abraham, if you follow the genealogy, was fulfilled in Jesus. The anointed Messiah, the one that came to save. It is in Jesus that the nations will be, will be blessed. But this is the part that you cannot miss. The reason why God makes a promise to Abraham and the reason why Jesus comes and accomplishes all of these things is not because God's people were faithful. It's because God was faithful. Do you know why you and I are here today? Because 3,700 years ago, God made a promise to Abraham. And the only reason why we are here is because God remains faithful when his people are unfaithful. This is part of the reason why we sang that beautiful promises song today. He is a God that is faithful. He does not let his people down. If God would not be faithful, we would have no hope. If that is true, then you got to get to know King Jesus. Because that faithful God gave us a faithful king. Because when God makes a promise, he never changes his mind. Because his promises are unbreakable. Because his presence is permanent. Because his character is unchangeable. Because his heart is reliable. Because his covenant love is unconditional. Because his grace is dependable. And his commitments are unmovable. Because his plans are indestructible. That's why we're here today. Because we have a faithful God that gave us a faithful king. He will never let you down. Yeah, give him glory. If that is true then, if you are a believer, you can have full confidence that whatever the Lord started, he will accomplish, even if it takes 1,700 years. If you are a believer, then there's no reason why we should fear. 
Because God never walks away. Even if it takes 1,700 years. If that is true, then that means that God is trustworthy. See, we know that God is trustworthy because he is faithful. All right. This is family, right? How many of you guys trust God most of the time? That's why I put most of the time. Because that is not true of every day at all times. Sinclair Ferguson, which is a Scottish theologian, says that because of the sin in our hearts, we really have a hard time trusting God. And that's why we struggle with obedience. Because somehow, deep down inside, because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, we don't trust God as much as we think we do. He says that Christians, many Christians today, even today, um, Sometimes we picture God like a father that takes his son to the toy store and says to the son, look at all these beautiful toys. And once the kid has seen all these beautiful toys, he looks at the kid and says, do you like them? And the kid says, yeah. And the father looks at him and says, well, you can't have any. <laughs> and he says, that's how we all struggle inside. You know where that comes from, right? Our parents, Adam and Eve. God looks at this beautiful couple, naked couple, and he says to them, you have 20 million trees for you. Trust me, don't eat of just this one. And what does the devil do? He's questioning God's trustworthiness. He comes to them and he says, my words, don't you think that God is keeping you from something good? Are you sure you can trust God's heart? And from that point on, we all struggle with it. But the ultimate evidence that God is trustworthy is that he sent Jesus. And he is trustworthy because even though it took 1,700 years, God remained faithful. And if God remained faithful, then we have a king that reflects that father, and that's why a king is faithful. Not only we have that kind of king in Jesus, but we also have the king that is not ashamed let me ask another personal question, and I'm going to need collaboration on this one. How many of you have a relative that you would wish that he or she would not be part of the family? Can you raise your hand? <laughs> Only like three of you? Like, really? How many of you? Just raise your hand. All right. Let me ask you an even more personal question. How many of you have that relative sitting next to you right now? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I have a beautiful family, but there's a couple of them that not sure if I would like you guys to meet them. 
You know what's interesting about this genealogy? The kind of people that Jesus left there. That's crazy. That would be people that I would never put in my genealogy. See, back in those days, the part of the reason why I used the word resume at the beginning is because back in those days, in ancient times, your genealogy was kind of your resume. So people wouldn't write this thing and say, this is the school I went to, and this is the education I have, and this is my accomplishments, and this is all these things, trying to convince people that you are worthy. They didn't have that. Their resume was their genealogy. If, if you wanted to convince someone that you were worthy, you would list all the beautiful people that are part of your family. All the amazing people that are part of your family. So you got to ask the question, what was Jesus thinking about? For example, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, he mentions Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, and the father of Judah. Just with those four, I struggle with. Abraham and Isaac, they both were liars. Actually, both of them were willing to risk their wives to save themselves. Who would put those guys in your list? <laughs> Jacob was a deceiver. Judah was willing to sell his little brother into slavery to retain power. Who would put these guys in their list? It gets better, people. In verse 3, for example, he mentions Tamar. And in verse 5, he mentions Rahab. And then he mentions Ruth. I could do the same thing, by the way, with every single name. I just don't have the time to do that. This is what you need to know. Uh, to know. In that culture and at that time, nobody or hardly anybody would put women in their genealogy. Because in that time and in that context... Women were not worthy enough to be put in that list. And yet Jesus, going countercultural, puts women in his personal list. But you got to ask the question, what kind of woman he put in that list? See, Tamar had committed incest. Rahab had been a prostitute. And both Rahab and Ruth were Gentiles. We know you would ever put a Gentile in their genealogy. Why would Jesus put this woman in his list? And it gets better. Because in verse 6, he says that Jesus comes from King David. But notice what he says about King David. David was the father of Solomon whose mother has been Uriah's wife. Don't you find that weird? He doesn't use the lady's name, Bathsheba. All he says is that that lady had been married to Uriah. You know that story, right? You know that David was supposed to be working that day, and he took a chill day, personal day, sick day. And as he's chilling in the rooftop of his palace, from the distance, he looks at this beautiful woman, Uriah's wife. And he seduced this woman 
and takes advantage of his power. Now, what is even more crazy is that Uriah had been a faithful army person. Faithful warrior. If you know anything about that guy, he was one of the guys that went and sacrificed his life for King David. And Matthew, just in case you missed it, he says, yeah, Jesus comes from King David. But you do remember that King David had committed adultery and then ordered for a faithful, good man to be killed. Why would Jesus put this man in his genealogy? Actually, if he was like us, I would have left the second part out. King David, period. <laughs> you know why he doesn't? Listen up, church. Because God has his people. And if you're a Christian, you're part of that group. And God is never ashamed. He's never ashamed of you. It doesn't matter what you've done. Actually, it doesn't matter what you do. And it doesn't matter what you will do. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, he is the king who is never ashamed of his people. You know where I get that from? That genealogy is the family from where Jesus comes. This is something that Patrick Schreiner said. This family, it shows us for where, uh, the family from where Jesus comes from. And at the same time, it reveals the family for which Jesus comes. So listen, do you have dirt in your closet? You qualify. Jesus is not ashamed of you. And Jesus will never be ashamed of you. He's not waiting for us to fix our lives. He comes so he could fix our lives. You don't have to fix yourself to be attracted. So for him to be attracted to you, you know what attracts him to you? Your dirt. Because he wants to make you new. To a certain degree, King Jesus is a king that is proud of his people. He does not excuse your sin, but he, he's proud of you. A few years ago, I shared this with you. I, I learned this from the pastor and theologian and missionary, Jack Miller. He tells the story about this one girl, this little girl, that had a terrible relationship with her dad. And because of that, she had a hard time trusting God as a father and understanding that God was uh, in love with her. So as an adult, she goes to a counselor and trying to process all this out. And um, in, in the counseling session, she's explaining this. And she's saying, I have a hard time trusting God as a father because I feel that he's always ashamed of me, ashamed of me basically, right? And she goes on and tells this story about this one time when she's about five years old. And she wants to try to earn or purchase her dad's love. So as a five-year-old girl, she goes and takes one of her dad's shirts, and she washes it. Five-year-old girl. But she didn't notice, and she stained the, the shirt with something else. Unintentionally, she did not notice, 
She dried it. She put it away. When dad comes, she says, Daddy, Daddy, look at what I did for you. I washed your shirt. But this man right away noticed the stain. And he was harsh and pushed it away. How could you do this to me? So she's sitting with this counselor and she's saying, this might be the reason why I can't see God as a good, loving father. Now the counselor, being a good counselor, she says, let me ask you a question. If Jesus was your dad, what do you think it would be Jesus' reaction to your stained, to your stained shirt, to the stained shirt? To which she says, I think that Jesus will forgive me. And the counselor looks at her and said, you don't get it yet. Jesus not only will forgive you for something that you did, but he will take the same shirt, put it on, go to work, and brag about you. And he will say to people, look at the shirt that my daughter washed for me. You are that girl. I am that girl. Jesus came to cover our shame. To get rid of our shame. And to give us freedom. Jesus is the king that is not ashamed. Do you know him like that? And lastly, the gospel of Matthew shows us that Jesus is the king of peace. Did you notice the word 14? In verse 17 it says that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. What's that all about? I mean, who likes math? <laughs> and if you notice, there's three 14s, 14, 14, 14. That means that this is six sevens. And in the Bible, number seven is always an important number because it symbolizes fulfillment, completeness, rest, and peace. And if you notice, it says that there are six sevens, and Jesus is the seventh seven, meaning that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate completeness, the ultimate rest, the ultimate peace. And it explains why is it that Jesus came. See, part of the reason why Jesus had to come to start again was because all of us were restless. See, part of, the re part of the reason why Jesus had come to bring a new beginning and go to the cross is because we are all people, restless people. See, part of the reason why Jesus not only comes as a new beginning, but he comes to bring the good news and not just the good advice it's because he knows that in order for us to find rest, we need salvation. But part of the reason why he comes to bring the good news, not just a good beginning, but a good news, and the reason why he stays, he humbles himself, he becomes a human being, and he goes to the cross to suffer what we all deserve is because he's a faithful God. But part of the reason why when he goes to the cross, not only to start again, not only for the good news, not just because he's a faithful God, but he goes to the cross so he could take our shame away. So he could take our guilt away. So he could take the punishment we deserve. Because then and only then, just there at the cross, 
you'll find peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, and peace within. This is part of the reason why we participate in communion. So if you are a Christian, this celebration is for you. I'm going to ask you to please hold your cup. If you are not a Christian, I'm going to ask you to just wait. Get to know Jesus more and get to know Jesus first. Find the rest and the peace that you are looking in him. The Bible, though, before participating in communion, causes us to examine ourselves. So I'm going to ask you to take just a few seconds to do just that. I want you to answer the question in your heart. Is Jesus my king? Am I living in light of my new beginning? Do I trust him? Am I trying to save myself or am I trusting that he already saved me? Do I appreciate his faithfulness? Am I a slave to my shame? Have I received the peace of God? I'm going to give you a few seconds there. Lord, we want to ask for forgiveness because we are like the people in the Old Testament. Sometimes, Lord, we are stuck in our past. Sometimes, Lord, we continue to surrender to our sinful hearts. Sometimes, Lord, we don't embrace the good news that Jesus came to bring. And we continue to live like if we need good advice. Sometimes, Lord, we don't trust you enough. We forget that you have been faithful. And many of us are walking around full of shame. And I pray, Lord, that as we participate in communion, you help us see and taste that Jesus is the Lord, the King of peace. That he came to give us peace with you. That he brings reconciliation so we have peace with one another. And that by the power of the Spirit, we can have peace within. Can you help us understand, believe, and apply that? Now I'm going to ask you to remove the first cover of your cup if you haven't done so. Grab the bread. And the Bible says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate.
Now you can remove the second cover of your cup. And the scripture says that after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. God, we want to thank you. Because in Jesus, we have our big brother. The run, the race that we were supposed to run. That went all the way to the cross. But that when he went there, he was carrying us with him. But instead of allowing us to get nailed to the cross, he takes our place. He loses on purpose so in him we can win. So we can have you. Your forgiveness. Your peace your love, your rest, your faithfulness. Lord, just as these elements enter into our system, may the good news of King Jesus enter our hearts. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the church says,